This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. It is really hot and muggy here, so I picked up the quietest AC I could possibly find. It is like a quarter of the loudness of the one in my New York City apartment. So hopefully I'll be able to filter out all of the background noise in post. If not, I'll try again next week and maybe use NVIDIA Broadcast now that I have a graphics card that can handle it. But I just wanted to give you the warning straight out in case there is some weirdness in it. But I'll try my best to process the audio correctly. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got for the Q&A's. First up, over on Floatplane, the importer said the Master System Mr. Core has the snack option for SMS peripherals, and they were looking into getting an SMS light gun, but they're harder to find in their area, more expensive, and from what they've read, had more issues than the NES Zapper. Since both of these guns have the same basic function, do I know if there's an existing converter to allow using an NES Zapper on an SMS? No, they actually work differently, which is why you can get away with using the NES Zapper on a flat panel using those converted ROMs. It's not 100% accurate, but you would never be able to do that with the SMS or pretty much any other light gun out there, except the CDI, but that's a mouse, not a light gun. But, um, so no on that one, but I do agree with a lot of the other things you've said. Uh, they do have more issues than the NES Sapper, and they're inconsistent. And in fact, I had bought a whole bunch of them over the years, and one of them just never worked. So I left a little note on the bottom, you know, does not work. And then one day I wasn't paying attention. I grabbed it and started using it to test a CRT, and it worked perfect. And then afterwards I noticed, hey, that's the one that I had written does not work on it and it's worked ever since. So I don't really know what's up with that. Um, I've only pulled them apart once. I think I, I pulled one apart just to make sure it wasn't something obvious, like a wire that had fallen off or something visibly broken, but I couldn't really figure out what the issue was. The only thing is uh, more expensive. Now, I haven't bought one in a couple of years, but the last time I saw those, they were still under 20 bucks. So maybe try looking in slightly different places. Um, but, and I'll check my box to see if I still have a pile of them. I know I gave away a bunch over the years, but, uh, you know, I'll reach out and let you know if I have an extra that I could send you, but I think you're stuck using an SMS one. And once again, don't get discouraged if it doesn't work because it might just be a, the finicky gun. But if anybody has any ideas on how to consistently fix those or what the problem could have been, or if there's a part that needs replacing, please let us know because I do very much enjoy SMS light gun games especially Missile Defense 3D. That one's hilarious. So uh, if anybody has any fixes, I'm definitely all ears. A few people just wanted to chime in on the discussion from last week about just because something is new doesn't mean it necessarily is going to be good. And a few people chimed in that picking up the right soldering iron station was a big difference for them. Fabian came back and said that the one that they were using are generic, but distributed by a German specialist electronics retailer with an above average reputation. So this is one of those interesting spots where you did the right thing. You bought from a reputable reseller, but did you end up with junk 
by accident. And that's what uh, working with smaller stores that you could trust, that's where you kind of get that advantage where you don't really get as many things that might fall off like that. Or if you do, they're easier to return. So, um, you know, hopefully it all falls into place for you, but I definitely just wanted to echo that statement again. It's just because something is brand new doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be better or worse than anything else out there. But I guess that would apply to pretty much anything. So thanks for chiming in. Firebrand X was kind enough to chime in about the discussion regarding SNES digital audio, and I think it's easiest if I just read out FBX's response, because that'll be better than anything I could fumble through, and I'll also place a link to what FBX shared in the description if anybody else is curious. But here's what he said. The biggest problem with SNES digital audio is the tolerance swing on playback rate. He finds this is the hardest concept to explain to people that there's both sample rate and playback rate. Sample rate refers to the quality or resolution of the sound, and playback rate refers to the speed or tempo of the sound. In the SNES's case, the sample rate is always 32 kHz, but the playback rate swings wildly from one console to the next, like I badly tried to explain last week. This is due to using high-tolerance swing parts like the crystalline caps involved in the circuit. They recall David Vane's of Plogue even found that the tolerance swings from those parts can cause random drift on the playback rate. This causes notes to rush or fall behind, even in the same song track. Granted, this drift is very small, but it is there, and of course, it's also there in the analog output as well. In addition to drifting audio, there's also the general fixed playback rate swing that could be measured on a given console. We tested dozens of SNES consoles and found the swing can be anywhere from 32 kilohertz to 32.15 kilohertz. They picked up on this when they were first doing R&D on their digital audio mod board design, where FBX could actually hear the faster tempo of the SNES one chip 3 versus an older revision SNES console. This is the part that can trip up compatibility on receivers and amplifiers, although the current Sony line of AV receivers handles the SNES digital audio feed without any problems, as well as uh, Woozle's Game Boy Advance consoleizer as well. As for using a resample board, the biggest problem with those is altering the original samples. FBX tested this process, and the alterations are permanent, meaning if you were to try to change the sample rate back down to 32 kHz and then examine the waveform, you'd find it doesn't match the original 32 kHz waveform. Granted, the human ear likely won't notice, but this can be an issue for purists, and it also may affect the tempo compared to the original, though they've not personally tested this. On analog low-pass filter, it's actually not really a big issue on the SNES. FBX recalls using MD4EA and found the corner cutoff was close to 9 kHz compared to less than 4 kHz on the Genesis. The Genesis needs aggressive low-pass filtering because of white noise in the YM2612 chip. On the SNES, it could actually sound better without the low-pass filter because the chips involved are digital and don't have a noise floor. FBX did a sampling poll, and 75% of voters agreed no low-pass filter digital audio sounded better than default analog. The other 25% admitted they were biased for nostalgia reasons, and here's samples, sample recording showing the difference. Digital with no low-pass filter is first, analog with the 9kHz low-pass filter is second. That's the link I will leave in the description for everybody.
On the topic of Super Game Boy and MSU1, you can still use analog output for those scenarios, as analog audio still works fine even with this digital mod in place. However, it's also possible to make a more elaborate mixing board that uses an analog to digital converter circuit and a DSP to combine the digital audio with the analog cart audio the sources came from. It just won't be as clean and pure as raw SNES music and sound is. It's kind of ironic that MSU1 uses digital audio tracks to spice up a game, but when applied to real hardware, it has to be applied to a digital-to-analog converter in the cartridge, and then sent to the SNES's mixing chip through analog cart audio leads. In the case of software or hardware emulation, MSU1 doesn't have to be sent through a DAC, and you get a cleaner sound experience. So that was an awesome overview. Thank you so much to FBX for taking the time to write that, and I will just summarize that as... If you want to do a digital audio mod on an SNES, it's not too hard to do. You probably are going to need to do some cutting unless you use a coax digital output and put it in place of the RF board, which is what I'd love to do because it's a no-cut mod. And as long as it's compatible with your receiver, you could be confident that you're going to get an excellent sound. It's just up to you if you want to go through that effort when you can get really good shielded analog cables and have a bit of that analog hum, but have no installation process necessary, and no compatibility issues. I also would never recommend using that circuit to mix the cart audio and the internal audio, because that seems like an insane amount of work. But if you're a super nerd like FBX, and like I try to be, <laughs> then maybe that'll be a fun project for you. But for me personally, I would just kind of choose one or the other and embrace it for what it is. Just my opinions, though, and thanks very much again to FBX for writing all that. Charles Madeira also wanted to post a follow-up to SNES Digital Audio. I read every word of the post, but I'll skip to the end just for uh, the interest of everybody's time here. The main reason for looking into SNES Digital Audio is because they already invested in a very nice, fully balanced digital-to-analog converter that also has an open Toslink port, Spitif jack, whatever you want to call it. So the theory that they have is that if they just keep everything digital and only let one device do the digital to analog conversion, they don't have to worry about multiple conversions in the chain and how that will affect the audio, which I am not an expert on this, but as far as the knowledge I have, that sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing to want. And it sounds like a great idea. Um, you know, anybody who goes down the audiophile rabbit hole knows that you can you can find digital to analog converters that are not awful for like 40 bucks, sometimes cheaper. I've seen the ones in the HDMI switches and, um, and audio extractors that are not terrible. But then you could move up to something like the Shipmodi. And yes, that is really the name of their company. And you can get an excellent digital to analog converter for under 200. And then it just hits the ceiling and whatever you want to spend at that point. I know a bunch of people who have invested well over a thousand bucks in DACs, as well as even higher end ones in AVRs or just receivers that have special preamps and really work to modify a sound in a way that's very specific. So it's not true to the original. It's trying to enhance it in ways that people may or may not like. So it's if you've found a DAC that you like consistently, I completely understand why you would want to keep everything in the digital realm. And if you've dropped a ton of money on it, if you were one of the people who were lucky enough to pick up a multi-thousand dollar DAC, then in that case, uh, I mean, yeah, it might actually be pretty interesting to try to find a way to mix the digital audio from the cart to the digital audio of the Super Nintendo itself and put both of those through. Um, but 
all of that would get pretty complicated. And at what point would you just want to say, I'll use analog audio with the original console for the original experience and use the mister for full digital and go from there. But that's a pretty cool thought and a cool setup. And uh, please let me know what you end up deciding to do because I'm kind of interested to see your thoughts on that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Oliver Clare had a question about the Sega Netlink portion of last week's weekly roundup. They've seen guides to getting your Saturn online, which involve a very specific model of voice over IP adapter. And unfortunately, they've never seen this specific model crop up on eBay, either blocked or unlocked, and they've been keeping an eye on listings for a few months. They were wondering, what are the alternative means of getting the Saturn Netlink online that use more readily available hardware? That is an excellent question, and I have no clue what the answer is. No disrespect, obviously, but that's definitely more of a question for the Sega Saturn Shiro crew or anybody involved in that project. So I would definitely start over at their Discord, a bunch of really friendly people over there, uh, and I would just kind of start from there and see where you go. And if you know, or if you're able to determine a couple of alternative adapters, so by determine, I mean, you know, you've personally tested it or somebody in the scene in the Discord has personally tested it, please let us know and we'll update the post. And that way more people could not have to go through what you're about to go through trying to find a compatible adapter. But good question. Sorry, I don't have the answer. One more from Oliver. They picked up a bunch of link cables and serial cables recently for PlayStation 1, 2, Game Boy, Dreamcast, and Saturn. And the plan is to build a little kiosk unit where a second console can sit for link cable gameplay. They were wondering what kind of signal is actually being sent through these console connecting cables like PS1 serial or PS2 iLink. Is it a video signal, something like a proto ethernet signal or something else? The reason they're asking is because they're planning on running all of these link cables together through a single piece of conduit and wanted to make sure that doing this won't cause any problems on the game's output. In the same way that distributing HDMI signals over CAT6 may produce distorted output on screen if the CAT6 runs or near other cables. That's a good question. I'm pretty sure they're all serial connections. And if you're an old nerd like I am, you already know what that is. If you're a younger nerd, you might want to visualize it like old school printers with those giant connectors that you've probably only seen pictures of. Uh, it's basically just a couple of ones and zeros, very low bandwidth going down an analog cable. And I don't think you would have to worry about interference in those scenarios. Now, if you're running them all down the same piece of conduit, if you mean you're running all of these cables through a tube, so they're still the original cables, my guess, only a guess, is you would have zero problems. 
Uh, if you do end up having problems, I'll apologize preemptively just in case, because I've never done anything like that before. But if you meant like you were trying to tap into all the signals and use Cat6 to run those signals instead of the original cables, there's a bunch more in the Twisted Pair thinner cables. There's a bunch more things involved that might not work right for you. So I, I think you meant the first way, though. I think you meant just take a single piece of conduit tube, stick all the cables through it and run them that way. I'm pretty sure you would have no issues. Um, you might not have issues doing it the other way, but that is something I might want to do a little bit more research on each just to make sure. Um, the bandwidth should be low enough, but I don't know about that. But hopefully I hopefully I understood your question right. Sounds like a pretty cool setup. Adam Adam Ant was able to stumble across a free PlayStation 1 model SCPH9001. But unfortunately, that doesn't have a parallel port, and that's the model that the PS1 digital mode and X-Station are not supported. The only thing they found that could be done is a mod chip to play region-free and backups. Do I have any suggestions as to what they could do with it to enhance the experience and usability so they could make it a little more marketable? Not really. I think those may have the ability to tap digital audio for people who care about that. You could, of course, just use a PlayStation 2 if you wanted digital audio, but that might be something neat. Um, other than that, really just adding a mod chip because playing backups is always a, a great way to go about doing things, as well as region-free and all that other stuff. So if anybody has any other suggestions, please post in the comments, but I think those are probably your best bet. Um, and I'm not sure how marketable the digital audio mods are just because there are other non-mod versions available. So that one's going to kind of have to be up to you. But it's, uh, you know, it, always good to get a free piece of equipment. So see what you could do with it. The only other thing you might consider doing is there are lots of people out there with cracked and broken shells. And there's also people out there who are excellent at painting shells. So one of the things I was just talking to my friend Russ Lyman at the Congo meetup the other day, and I suggested maybe he look for things like, because he does a great job painting these consoles. So I suggested he go and try to hunt down beat up yellowed cracked cases, repair them and paint over it so you can't see any of the repair work. And then that way you could kind of have things swapped out and ready to go. So maybe somebody, if it's in mint condition, maybe somebody would love to buy the case for use with another PlayStation. I'm not sure which models line up, but I'm just trying to think out of the box for you just to hopefully give you other options because sometimes parting stuff out ends up with more money in your pocket, but also helping more people because you could use it for multiple things. So that might've been a stupid idea or it might've been good. I don't know. I was just trying to think up ideas to help you out there, but if anybody has any suggestions, please let me know. Inmate 302 used a VGA to S video converter to get their PC on a 15 kilohertz Trinitron CRT that they also have all their consoles connected to via a SCART switch. They've been enjoying it, but the little converter is not very reliable, so they bought an HD15 to SCART, and it's not giving them any signal. Are they doing something wrong? Unfortunately, I think so. I think there's a few things involved. First of all, the VGA to S-Video adapter is converting 31 kilohertz to 15 kilohertz, probably in a 480i interlaced resolution as well. So it's downscaling, whereas the HD15 to SCART is only doing sync combining. So it's RGB is being passed directly through without any alterations whatsoever. So if you send it 640 by 480 or 31 kilohertz, it's 
still going to be sent through that way. The only thing it's doing is either lowering the, lowering the voltage of just H-sync, C-sync, or combining H and V-sync into C-sync for at a safe voltage. So that's definitely not going to work unless you somehow have a Trinitron CRT with a SCAR input that supports 480p, which I'm pretty sure isn't a thing. So you would need a downscaler to make that work. So you would need a GBS control or something like that. But the good news is you would still end up using the HD15 to SCART. So it was not a stupid purchase. It was a great purchase. You just need one more thing. So pick up a, a GBS control or mod your own or, or however, however you prefer. V, go VGA 640 by 480 in. Go into the settings and set it to downscale mode. And then take the VGA out into the HD15 to SCART into your SCART switch. Um, and that should do exactly what you're talking about. And it'll probably look better. Uh, and it will almost definitely have far less latency. So you're on the right track, definitely. The only thing I wanted to mention is that you would, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I just wanted to make sure that I, I say this just in case. You mentioned that the converter you were using were, was VGA to S-Video, but then you also said you had things going through a SCART switch. So I'm just assuming that means that this TV's got multiple inputs. You use the S-Video for the PC thing, and all of the other consoles are RGB SCART, and the TV accepts RGB through the SCART port, not just composite video. Just wanted to double check that that was it, because if it's one of the TVs that only accepts composite video over SCART, the HD15 to SCART's not going to work at all. But if you're in, uh, in, if you have a Trinitron with a SCART input, I'm pretty sure it would support RGB, so you should be fine there. But hopefully, I was able to kind of get you on track to where you need to be. Last one from Oliver Claire. They just saw the Retrofrog PS1 vertical stand, and it got them thinking: Are optical drive emulators like the SIO mode and X Station vulnerable to heat from the PS1's power supply, similar to how the original laser assembly was? Um, Everything that's electronic is susceptible to heat or heat damage or wear from heat, but it's all down to how much and comparatively speaking to the rest of the components. So every piece of electronics ever made, if you run it at the perfect operating temperature, will last longer. But will it last a week longer, a year longer, a hundred years longer? That is a million different factors. So I generally don't think about that in basic operation. Uh, as far as compared to the original ODEs, I'm pretty sure that they would have less effect because there's no moving parts, there's less stuff on there, there are more modern chips. So I just I want to be careful with this answer because I don't want to give a cop-out answer, and I also don't want to talk out of my ass about things that I'm not 100% sure about. But I'm pretty sure in this situation where you have a modern replacement that's as far as components, much simpler a design. Obviously, ODEs are very complicated to make, but you don't have a whole bunch of moving parts and you don't have to worry about grease on the different gears and all that stuff. So I'm pretty sure in that context, these ODEs are less vulnerable to heat than the original optical drive uh, solution was. Um, so it's not really something I would personally worry about. I would worry more about the power supply itself, making sure that that's recapped. Uh, or if you were multiple regions, I would, I would probably swap that out with a different power supply with an external brick, both for heat, but mostly region reasons. So hopefully I explained that okay, but it's just one of those things where, you know, there could always be a gutcha. 
there could always be a component on one of these boards that's more susceptible to heat than another or something like that. So I just wanted to give more of a general answer, but I'm pretty sure ODEs are going to last far longer than the original optical drives, uh, regardless of heat, as long as everything else is kept in decent condition. Jim Nardachia, aka Good Guy Jim. Did I get your name right? Uh, I, I'm always trying really hard, and based on the fact that you said this is just say it's from Good Guy Jim means I probably slaughtered your name, and I'm really sorry. It's never my intention. But anyway, they have an early 90s Dolby surround stereo hooked up to their PVM, and they love it. It's got subwoofers in the left and right towers because there were no standards yet, so why the hell not? Their issue is if the center channel is connected and they send mono to it, it routes all sound through the center channel speaker. If the center channel is not connected, it will send audio to both the left and right speakers, which sounds much better, partially because the subs are built in and you have a wider range of audio. This is most noticeable when playing mono consoles like the NES. Do I know of any kind of switch where they could easily and safely disable the center speaker without disconnecting the speaker wire? It uses spring clip terminals and standard wire. So that's a great question, and that's kind of on board with one of the questions that I've had that I haven't started researching yet. Uh, I do want to just confirm. So all you have to do is remove those cables, and the center channel uh, automatically isn't detected, and the other two speakers come back on. Uh, try unplugging it from the center channel speaker. So try making sure that there's still a cable plugged into your receiver, and just nothing connected to the other side. And if it automatically drops back to using the other two speakers in mono, then you should be able to make your own switch of sorts that you could mount wherever is most convenient, where you basically just have a four-pole switch, or yeah, I think a four-pole switch, or a six-pole or something. I'm sorry, it's still early for me, and I didn't really sleep last night. But basically, where one position, the switch is not connected to anything at all, and the other position, the switch bridges the terminals together so that it completes the circuit. That should be all you need. What I'm looking for is I have these beautiful Yamaha studio monitors that I, I just got fully magnetically shielded. And I, I mean, it really has improved my audio mixes because I'm able to hear things blended in a, a flat speaker a little bit better. But I figure since they're here and they're positioned perfectly uh, in front of my other uh, or in front of my displays, what if I use these as two extra surround channels? So rather than 5.1, I have 7.1. So theoretically, it's possible. I would have to take the RCA preamp outputs from my amp. Obviously not the speaker, because these are powered studio monitors. I have to run it all the way across the room, which I still have to figure out how to do that neatly. But I could only have one input connected at a time with these studio monitors. So I would basically need a quarter-inch jack switch so I would have everything connected and have to manually switch it between my computer output and the speakers. And of course, I could just leave the wires dangling and unplug and replug, just like, of course, you could reach back and just unplug the speakers on your Adobe receiver. But a, a switch, I think, would be a much cooler solution. Uh, and I, I just, I like building nerd shit like that. So if anybody has any thoughts on this, I would absolutely love to hear them because it's not as easy as it may sound. 
I mean, it is, but determining the switch is the hard part because what is the impedance of the switch? How will that affect the signal? How is the switch itself built? Will there be some kind of signal bleed or crosstalk so that you get a hum or some kind of interference when you're hooking up your audio? And that would also count for yours as well because what if it's not fully disconnected from the other? What if there's just enough to pick up some kind of interference? Uh, so that's going to be an interesting question. Is anybody out there an audiophile that could understand this type of switches that we both need? Uh, there's going to be slightly different, of course, but it's still the same theory. It actually might be the same exact switch. It's just that I'll be switching between two sources and Jim will be switching between one source and no source. So it could be the exact same switch. Uh, and heck, I'd even buy that in a nice 3D printed case so I could just have on my desk and not worry about. But any thoughts on that? I, th I think it would be a really cool project to look into just because it sounds way simpler than it is. But the moment you start throwing switches into the mix, you have, uh, it could possibly change the sound. And I've definitely heard that stuff before. A couple of questions from the Remora. First, do I know where they could find save files that work with the Darksoft Neo Geo cart? They plan to see if a local shop is interested in running some tournaments using their OpenMVS. However, they'd like to have all the characters available for the players and don't have the skill or time to unlock everything. Hopefully, I could point them in the right direction. I think the best place to ask that would be Darksoft's forums, Arcade Projects. I think it's arcade-projects. I'll leave a link. And uh, I think it's a cool idea to just ask there. You know, you have to go in there with some patience because there's a ton of really awesome people there, but there's also a bunch of horrific trolls that just l love causing trouble. I don't know what it is with the Neo Geo scene. I think maybe a lot of the rich kids from the 90s were just awful to be around and they had Neo Geos and they never learned how to have friends because they were just spoiled. And so now those people are adults and they're still the same spoiled assholes. So I, I, that's my only guess, but Neo Geo definitely draws a certain type of person, as well as hardcore arcade enthusiasts, developers, and some really freaking awesome people. So I think it's worth having some patience and just hopefully you're going to get a decent answer on that forum. Uh, if anybody has save game files uh, that's listening, maybe you'd be willing to uh, upload them. I would love to see stuff like that on the wiki. I think it'd be a little complicated to get to that first, so maybe we just dump it on a page at the moment and then worry about making it pretty later. But I love ideas like this because I think it benefits a lot of people. And I would like that for all consoles and all types of things because speedrunners, it could be a help for people who their battery dies in their cartridge and they lose their save game file and they know they're halfway through Zelda 1 or something. You know, that, there's a lot of stuff like that where I think that would be a pretty awesome thing. So if you find any, please let me know and we'll figure it out. Good luck on that forum. Uh, also, they have a question regarding how the OpenMVS video circuit works. It's outputting TTLC sync and composite video level sync, not composite video. So if uh, if you could visualize in your head a, wave, a composite video waveform, you know, there's a bunch of stuff on top. And then at the bottom is that same exact square sync signal that you would normally see just at a lower voltage than a Genesis 2 TTL level sync. And what the OpenMVS does is outputs just that portion, nothing else. And the reason we did this is so that you could use sync on composite video cables like HD Retrovisions, some shielded SCART cables, and 
it would work exactly as if it was really composite video because all they care about is sync. But there is no composite video option. And as we've learned in all of the tests that we've done, it's really hard to do an RGB to composite video external conversion. I would like to go back to the OpenMVS and see if we could do some kind of composite video out just for fun. But And I do also completely understand why people would want to use that. If you're running a tournament, it is super easy to find a couple of consumer-grade CRTs with composite only, and now you have a not-as-nice-looking solution, but a zero-lag original experience-style solution. For me personally, um, the OpenMVS was super important to get the best quality audio and RGB video, and everything else was kind of an afterthought to me because Neo Geo has always been an arcade platform. And while this is only my opinion... I do think that your average person who wants to play Neo Geo today is going to treat it arcade style and want that RGB output. So adding the composite video circuit would have been a ton of work and a lot of cost. And that was the decision. Do you add 25, 30 bucks worth of cost to something that most people buying the kit wouldn't need? And that's why we just said, Let's make it RGB and we'll figure it out later. Maybe there'll be a special edition or something like that. So uh, you will not be able to use composite video at all from an open MVS. Uh, if you need composite, you could try some of the adapters that are out there. And there's some more coming. I think I have a few being shipped to me at the moment. So you might get lucky. And I might be able to have an adapter show up that you could purchase that will have like a RGB to composite out with that dial, just like I showed on Ivory, the Retro Castle Mr. Case. If there's an external version of that, you might be able to do this, but and it would be better overall, because if you're only using it with Neo Geo, you dial it in once and once only. But if you decide to use it with other stuff, you could use it with anything that's RGB. So uh, it was a really long way to say it's not composite video, it's just a lower voltage sync that's sync on, compatible with sync on composite cables. So uh, hopefully I was able to point you in the right direction and sorry if there was any confusion about composite. Couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, why do some USB charge cables wear out and when they do, how come they work with some devices and not others? And I don't know for sure the answer to this, but I have what I think is a pretty decent guess and that on, the, on one side of things, if there's physical damage to the cable, that's kind of obvious. So I have a couple of USB-C cables here that are the perfect length for my setup, but I'm constantly unplugging and plugging stuff in, and the wires are getting frayed, and I'm sure it's going to stop working at some point. So that one's obvious. But what about the situation where the cable looks perfect? Why would that work on one device and not others? And I think it has to do with the authentication of the signals that go through it. And if those pins are starting to wear, or if maybe it's starting to kind of crack and uh, break apart on the board on the inside of the heads, it could be having less of a connection than it was when it was new. So some devices might be able to scan through that and others might fail back as an error and think it's a charge only cable or not realize how much of an amperage that it could use so it just shuts off or something like that. And all of these devices are different. So my, my answer is generic, both because I'm not an expert in it and because they will completely differ if you're charging like a generic converter device that you buy off of Amazon versus a smartphone or a tablet or a PC or, you know, meaning a laptop or something. So 
That's just my guess is it's kind of wearing out from the inside rather than from the outside. But if I'm wrong uh, or or if I'm on the right track, but there's more info, somebody please chime in. I always love learning new things and I never mind being wrong. I just uh, would love the real info if I did get that wrong. Second, um, the, the 4K gamer broke 4K camera. Wow, I cannot... Next, Jason wanted to know what happened with the 4K Gamer Pro campaign. And it looks like Nintendo, via their Pokemon division, sent a copyright strike to that campaign because they used images of Pokemon games in their campaign, which is a giant load of bullshit. Um, I really hate stuff like this because it is absolute abuse of these laws. And unfortunately, as I've talked about a million times, really in court, whoever has the most money and the better lawyer wins, at least in the U.S. So while this is absolutely wrong, nothing anybody could do about it. Uh, However, it seems that the company behind 4K Gamer Pro just removed all of those images and resubmitted the campaign. So hopefully it'll be unpaused and just continue where it left off. Um, But this is just a whole bunch of bullshit. And it it just goes to show how companies can basically do whatever they want and there's nothing we could do about it. So always be careful when using anything that's owned by someone else. And it doesn't really matter if it's another YouTuber or if it's a giant company. Stuff could always go sideways. So always try to use permission. And you would think that something that basically is free promotion for something else positive free promotion, not negative, you would think that would always be appreciated, but nope. So yeah, I thought that was a bunch of bullshit. But as soon as the campaign relaunches, Wobbling Pixels is going to be releasing a video that I'm very interested to see because um, I really enjoyed what I saw in certain situations for the 4K Gamer Pro. And I'll make this short. I'll finish this up in like 30 seconds because I know I've talked about this a lot before, but Basically, if you have a 4K TV and a 1080p source that you would like to be sharp scaled, this is a very cool device. If you're looking for something to smooth out jagged edges, this is the opposite of what you want. So I do think it has a market. It was already funded, and I I really hope that this gets back on track. And I also really, really hope they just add a nearest neighbor scaling option, because that would be a big help for a lot of people. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, that sucks a lot. So hopefully that'll all fall back into place. Next from Jason, when it comes to UPSs, uninterruptible power supplies, what kinds of devices do I think should be considered priority one? How many do I think is enough? And are CRTs good candidates for being plugged into one? So all good questions, but there's one more question that you need to ask first. Are you looking for power conditioning and safety, or do you specifically need constant power to a device or uh, have the ability to do a soft shutdown in the case of a total power failure? And that needs to be the first decision. If you decide, like I do for that setup back there, that the importance in that is clean power, clean enough power, you could spend a lot of money on those things, but and also protection from surges and power spikes and stuff like that. You could buy those APC devices that I list in the Amazon store that are 70 bucks or something that went up a little bit in price, but those do a great job just making sure that your devices are safe and that the power that's applied to it is good and consistent. 
Now, on the flip side, if you need something like for your PC or for your routers or cable or modems and stuff like that, you would want a UPS to keep them on at all times, or in the case of your PC, have the ability to do a soft shutdown. For both of those devices, they each have their own ratings on them. So that's how you would know how many is enough, because if you buy a, a UPS that has a certain wattage rating and an amp rating and all that stuff, check all the specs, then check the specs of your devices. That's how you would know. Uh, and also with both of those devices, uh, just the power conditioners and the UPSs, Remember that the voltage and power ratings are for how many devices are going to be turned on at the same time. In my setup back there, I have a ton of devices and multiple uh, power strips plugged into one of those APC power conditioners because it, it's rare that more than one monitor is turned on at the same time. And I did the calculation, and as long as I don't turn on everything at once, I will be far underneath the power max of that box. Same thing with, I have one, uh, a small UPS hooked up to my router uh, and to my modem. And that is, you know, those devices are far under the limit. So that is a pretty good uh, setup. And I do have another one for my PC that broke. So I actually am just going direct now. What type of UPS you need is something else that you need to consider. For things like a router and, you know, a, a cable modem, unless you have really high-end stuff, like I'm talking, you know, multiple thousand dollar network, pro-level networking stuff, I just buy pretty much any UPS and it's I've never had an issue. But if you want to make sure to get a good quality one for things like a PC or a server or something like that, you're going to want to get a sine wave UPS to make sure that the power is better. I'm going to oversimplify because I'm probably going to talk too long about this anyway, to make sure you get the better power out of it for the devices that you would need it. And something like a router and a cable modem or a DSL or a fiber modem or whatever, that draws so little power that it really doesn't make that much of a difference. If I'm wrong about that, let me know, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about this one. Whereas you can hook a PC up to any UPS as long as the specs match, but you might get better performance overall with a sine wave one, which are much more expensive. So that's why I always want to say the difference between the two. Now, of course, you could get a sine wave UPS and hook it up to your CRTs, but the only time I would think that was necessary is in uh, if you were in a situation where you got lots of brownouts. And when I lived in Stanford in an apartment, almost every day in the summer, the power would go off, come back on. And it would do that once or twice. The power would never stay off for a very long time, but there would be tons of little things like that. So if that were the case, uh, that's when I would add those for CRTs. And I did actually have UPSs on my home theater, my TV, you know, home theater at the time it was two speakers and a beat ass old receiver, but still I did have the UPS on those just because it's not really great for the devices to be in the middle of a TV show or something and have that happen. But in the house that I'm in now, I've never had the power go out or I've never had the power drop out for only a second like that. It's only just been a normal power outage that happens every few months because of a pole going down or whatever. So I just use the APC boxes for most of my things. And at the moment, I think the only UPS I have active 
is the one that's connected to the the networking equipment just to make sure it all stays up. So hopefully that was a decent rundown on power and what you would need. I'll leave links in the description for different things. But basically, just to sum it up, make sure that you decide what type of device you need. Conditioning power or actually battery backup to keep it running in the event of a power loss. And then always check the specs of your equipment versus the devices to make sure you're not drawing more than they could handle. And then if you do go for a UPS, pick a sine wave based one for your equipment that really matters. And I could be wrong about this last one, but I would just get any UPS for very low power equipment that you want to keep running when the power goes out. Um, and the few times the power did go out, I still had my wireless network and internet connection running, and it was pretty cool to see that. So hopefully that kind of sums things up. And lastly from Jason, they want to know how much they need to worry about burn-in for PC gaming on a CRT. They do things like hide the taskbar and try to set as many of the static elements to black as possible. So is burn-in still a concern? I think there's a few factors in that. So first of all, as long as you're not leaving your PC on 24-7 as well as the monitor, then the likelihood of burn-in drops significantly. So I guess even if you do leave your PC on, just turn the power off on the CRT. Also, I'm pretty sure when it comes to any black elements on the screen, it's just not being drawn. So there's less chance of a burn-in. Now, it could be something like the CRT, if you were to leave it theoretically 24-7 for years, it could be that the rest of the tube wears out faster than all of the black-only areas, but that would mean you'd have to leave a single static screen on without ever changing it for a long time. So I think in the context of using your PC and gaming on it, as long as you just have some kind of screensaver, you should be fine and you've taken the you know you've taken the steps to try to reduce it in other ways like making you know hiding your taskbar automatically and stuff like that so for me personally and just an opinion but i wouldn't obsess about it as long as i've taken the right steps and don't abuse it so i'm not going to like pause something and then have a website up and then walk away and forget about it for a couple of days without having a screensaver or an auto power off option. But on the flip side, if I got hardcore into a game and was playing three hours a day with the same exact life bar and status bar, I wouldn't worry about that. As long as I turned it off when I was done, um, I, I wouldn't worry about it. And if burn-in did happen, I, I wouldn't freak out just because, I mean, it, it's you know, it, these are designed to be used. So unless you're trying to preserve them forever, some kind of wear and tear is going to happen. But I really just don't think it's something you'd have to worry about in that scenario, the way you're describing. I think it would be less likely than OLED burn-in with a PC, just to be honest. So, and even then, with an OLED, as long as you've taken the steps that you've taken, if it's something you really want to use, I would just consider that part of the normal use. But just my opinions, you could uh, decide how much you want to obsess over it. But I think you've taken good steps and I would just enjoy it as is. Well, that's it for this week. I broke up Jason's questions at the end because I kept getting interrupted halfway through one of the other questions. But I normally like to read them all as if I was talking to the person, just kind of more of a fluid conversation, but let me know what you all think. Would you prefer that I break up multiple part questions into different sections like that, or just read them conversation style? 
I I really don't care, and I mean that in a nice way. I just I have fun doing it either way. I just want to do what flows better and what you all prefer. But anyway, if you're new to these Q and A's and you want to ask a question, wherever it is that you support, just ask in the latest Q and A post because the way these services work, I can't figure out what's in older or a newer post, a newer question on an older post, uh, and I just like scrolling through in real time like you saw today. So any questions you have whatsoever, fire away wherever it is that you support in the latest post. Uh, And as always, thanks to everybody for any support at all, because this is what's keeping all of this going, and I appreciate it very much. So thanks, and I'll see you next week.